0: Welcome to Christ the King. We're grateful for you to be here, whether you're a student, a prisoner, or just a friend in our community. We are excited that you're here and grateful tonight that Father Philip Bochanski from the Courage Apostolate is with us. Father Philip is originally from Philadelphia. He's a priest in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia was ordained in 1999 Um, for five years he was the the chaplain the priest chaplain for the courage chapter in philadelphia and then after that was invited to work for courage on the national level so he's been in the national office for the past four years and since january of 2017 Father Bochanski has been the, the director of Courage International. He's a gifted speaker on many things. If you were here at the 10 a.m. Mass or the noon Mass this weekend, I've gotten a, a thousand compliments about his homily. So anytime you want to come back, Father, you're welcome to come back and celebrate Mass. But I will invite him up um, to speak and just begin with a prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to come and do whatever he wants to do. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We continue to entrust ourselves to your movements and your mercy. We give you permission to do whatever it is you desire to do. We thank you for the great gift that we are created in the image and likeness of the most holy trinity. We pray for a deeper knowledge and understanding of that great gift, our gift not only in, in the image of the trinity, but also the beauty of the sexual complementarity in which you have created us. We pray for an anointing upon Father Bochanski's talk and just that you would open our hearts, our minds, our ears to receive just the beauty of this truth and to seek, Lord, as we stumble along to live it um, as you so desire. We entrust ourselves to you tonight through the intercession of St. Joseph and the Immaculate Virgin Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. John Paul II. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's welcome Father Bochansky.
1: Thank you very much, and a special welcome to people who I could have baptized. As, uh, <laughs> as, as Father mentioned, I've been a priest for almost 20 years, and uh, it's a real privilege to say that uh, almost half of my priesthood now uh, I've spent working with Courage Apostolate and associated with people who are living with the experience of same-sex attractions, either in their own lives or in the lives of people whom they love and care about. Uh, it's not an apostle that I ever went looking for. If you had told me when I was your age that this would be my full-time job, I wouldn't have had a context in which to understand what you were talking about. Um, but after uh, almost nine years in this work, um, I have to tell you, it's, it's transformed my life in many ways. Um, it's the part of my priestly ministry where I feel most like a spiritual father. And for people to entrust their lives and their journey of faith to me, and and to come and say, look, I, I know God's asking me to do something, and I'm not sure all of what it means and if I'm going to be able to do it, but would you help me? Um, that's a great privilege for me. And it's it's really transformed my, uh, my estimation of what a human heart is all about and what human beings can do when they cooperate with God's grace. Um, so... Um, yeah, I just I, I, I come to you uh, kind of really feeling like I'm representing the people whom I serve in the apostolate, and I, so I come with a lot of gratitude to them uh, for sharing their lives with me. Um, most of what I know about uh, helping and accompanying people who are experiencing these attractions, I, I know because they've, they've shared their stories with me, and they've done so very bravely and, and very, uh, with great vulnerability, great honesty, uh, and so I, I owe a great debt to them. And I hope you know, to share with you tonight just some of the joy that I feel uh, and ex- have experienced uh, working with them and, and as well as some of the lessons that, that I've learned from them. Uh, what I want to focus on tonight is, is you know, how to understand what the church is teaching about sexuality in general and, and uh, same-sex attraction in particular um, as good news and, and what it is that the church is offering to people uh, if they're going to try to live that, that very challenging uh, message that the church is giving. So I want to start with, with uh, a story from scripture and you know throughout this liturgical year we've been reading from the uh, the gospel of Mark on Sundays and I've really gotten to love uh, Mark over the years of uh, preaching on his gospel and there's just these moments where uh where he has an insight into uh into just part of the the, the message that is easily overlooked sometimes yeah and the, the passage i have in mind is is a story that's familiar to us the story of the rich young man and jesus is walking along and this young man comes up to him full of enthusiasm and and really full of of desire to to do what god is asking him to do and he comes up to jesus and he says good teacher what must i do to inherit eternal life and jesus kind of poses a little uh kind of Q A with him he says well why do you call me good right what do you see in me that you want to imitate like you know how to be good keep the commandments and, you know, they have this little back and forth. And Jesus tells them the commandments he has in mind, honor your father and mother, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, etc. And, and the man, he's, like, with, with that zeal of a young person, he, he says to Jesus, right, right, but I, I've, I've done all that. Like, what about me? Like, that's for everybody. What about me? What's, what's my path to holiness? And Jesus tells him, well, if you want to be holy, then go and sell what you have and give it to the poor. And then come and follow me. And we know the rest of that story, right? The man walks away sad because, as the Gospels say, he had many possessions. And he wasn't quite ready to take that radical step. He wasn't quite ready to make that ultimate sacrifice. Now, the reason that I mentioned Mark a minute ago is because there are some people who read this story and read it the way that Mark tells it and suppose that there's good reason to think that that Mark might have been that rich young man. And that this moment of turning away and walking away was not the end of the story. Right? That maybe he went away sad because he had many possessions, but then he thought about it, what Jesus was asking him, and he, he prayed and, and he reflected and he was finally able to do it, to give away the things that were keeping him from a deeper love of God and come back to be not just a disciple but an evangelist. And, and the reason that they think it, it might be Mark himself is because Mark includes a detail when he tells this story that Matthew and Luke do not. Right? All of them say that Jesus told the young man to go and sell what he had and give it to the poor. But only Mark says it this way. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Right, which makes this, this expectation not just a, an obligation, but a vocation, a calling, an invitation. That's given out of love. That love that stems from a deep knowledge. Jesus knew this man. He saw into his soul. And he knew that he, there was something in him that was holding him back. There was something in him that was, was keeping him from a deeper relationship with God. And Jesus knew that it would be challenging to pose this to this man. And, and because he knows the human heart so well, he must have known that the first time he heard it, the rich young man would, would despair and walk away. And he said it anyway. And he said it not to be a jerk about it, right? Not to be difficult, not just to, to give this guy an impossible task, but he said it because looking at him, knowing him, understanding him, knowing exactly what he needed, and loving him through all of that, he wanted a deeper relationship with this guy. And he said, this is the only thing standing between you and me. Can you do this for us? Can you give this up? Can you lay this to aside? Can you live without this one thing that you're clinging to right now so that you and I can have a deeper relationship, so that you can be my followers, that you can come and walk in my footsteps? And that's an invitation that's given out of love. Now, we're all called to be saints, We we share a universal call to holiness, and the definition of of sanctity in terms of like who gets canonized and why not strive to be canonized right like why 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 be boring right aim high. But if you're going to be canonized, it'll be because you practice heroic virtue. Not just the stuff that everybody's supposed to do, not just keeping the commandments that everybody keeps, but to ask the Lord, what's my heroic choice that I have to make? What's the radical call that you're giving to me? What is it that's keeping me from a deeper relationship with you? And it can be terrifying to ask that question unless we know that the answer is coming from this place of love. That if we say to Jesus with sincerity... I want to be better, I want to be closer, I want to be holy, I want to be yours, then he's going to look at us and love us and tell us what's necessary and give us the grace to do it. If we're going to be happy and fulfilled, we have to find our vocation. At the Second Vatican Council, the church says, the church knows that her message is in harmony with the most secret desires of the human heart when she champions the dignity of the human vocation, restoring hope to those who have already despaired of anything higher than their present lot. Far from diminishing man, her message brings to his development light, life, and freedom. Apart from this message, nothing will avail to fill up the human heart. Right? Now, We all have those moments where we think to ourselves, this can't be all that there is. And it's usually, sadly, in those moments when we're doing the things that everybody around us is telling us are, is going to make us happy, right? We're, we're, we're making compromises with what we, what we know is right, perhaps, or we're going along with the crowd, or we're, we're kind of going up past where, where our boundaries used to be. And, and we get to that point, and, and we're doing what everybody said was going to be the answer, and then we're just, there's still something missing, and we think this can't be all there is. So what happens when we've despaired of anything higher than our present lot, when we don't know where else to go? God steps in with a vocation. God steps in with an invitation, with a call. And it's an invitation to radical holiness and oftentimes to great sacrifice. But it's the only thing that's going to fill up the human heart. It's the only thing that's going to make us happy, is to accept and strive to answer that radical call. Okay, I'll pause now in case this is a heck of a lot more than you bargained for walking in here and you'd like to leave. Because we're, If we're not going to talk about radical holiness, we really are going to be wasting our time. Right? But radical holiness means radical sacrifice, heroic sacrifice, heroic virtue. And if Jesus is inviting you to that, it's because he knows you, he sees you, he loves you. Which means that whatever he's asking you to do is possible if you're working together with him. We've got to start from that foundation. And that goes for everybody. No matter where you're coming from, what baggage you're carrying, what you're feeling, what you're thinking, that's everybody's call in some way, shape, or form. Don't be afraid to ask Jesus, what's your radical sacrifice? he didn't fly me all the way down here to talk about holiness in general, right? I've got a specific job that I do and a specific group of people that I work with. And so what I want to talk about tonight in terms of this idea of vocation is what is the vocation that God is giving to people who are living with the experience of, of being gay, of, of, of being uh, lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender or queer or asexual or, or any of the other the ways that, that people uh, experience uh, sexual desire and desire for relationships and their sense of self. What is God asking and, and offering to people who are living with that experience? How, how can they respond? Right? That's the question that I get most often. After people come and say, I think this is what I'm supposed to do, but I don't know what it's all about. The question that they really want to know and the question that, that, that sometimes holds them back is, what is my life going to be like? What's my future going to be? Is there a happy life, a normal life uh, that God has in mind for me, and how do I find it? Right? And so I'd like to look at that tonight, both in terms of understanding where the church is teaching uh, can guide us in understanding that but but also in, in just trying to embrace that you know trying to find the the, the wherewithal to, to accept that as as something that really is life giving is really good news and it starts with our our understanding of human identity you know for for those of you who are our students here you know for all of human history young people have had to answer two big questions you know who am I What's sex about? Right? And for most... Am I right? For most of human history until like half an hour ago, right, we had structure and tradition and and family and church and and society and school was all there to help you to understand your identity and understand uh, relationships and especially uh, marriage, which is the the context of sexual relationship. But, you know, something's changed recently so that, that we, we, we start to look at identity always through the lens of sexuality and sexual attraction, you know, and and run the risk of, of missing, really, the depths of who a person is if we, if we kind of limit our understanding of, of identity to just those kind of labels, right? But our identity is so much deeper than that. Again, from the Second Vatican Council, the truth is, But only in the mystery of the incarnate word, Jesus, made flesh, does the mystery of the human being take on light. Christ fully reveals human beings to themselves and makes their supreme calling clear. Trying to use inclusive language on the fly, bear with me. The Lord Jesus implied a certain likeness between the union of the divine persons, the Trinity, and the unity of God's sons and daughters in truth and charity. This likeness reveals that the human person who is the only creature on earth which God willed for itself cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of self. We know who we are when we give ourselves away, when we make a commitment in radical love to someone else. And this is at the heart of of who we are. It's what shapes our identity. the, the, The fact that we're made for this, is what gives us our dignity and gives purpose and direction and context to our lives. right? So we always have to keep our eye on that, on, on the way that we're made and the plan by which God makes us, the purpose that he has in mind when knowing us and seeing us and loving us, he, he creates us as who we are. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, part one of the departments of the Vatican that assists the Pope in, in teaching and, and keeping people on the right road with, with teachings, uh, had this to say. The human person made in the image and likeness of God can hardly be adequately described by a reductionist reference to his or her sexual orientation. Is sexual orientation important? Absolutely. It is a profoundly important, profoundly felt part of human experience. But it would be reductionist, the church insists, to see people only through that lens. Now, this was written in 1986, but in 2016, Pope Francis said something similar. He was giving an interview, and and the subject of, of LGBT people came up. He says, I'm glad that we're talking about homosexual persons, because before all else comes the individual person, in his or her wholeness and dignity. And people should not be defined only by their sexual tendencies. Let us not forget that God loves all his creatures, and we are destined to receive his infinite love. So again, from that document from 1986, today the church provides a badly needed context for the care of the human person, when she refuses to consider the person only as a heterosexual or a homosexual, and insists that every person has the same fundamental identity, to be a creature, and by grace, a child of God, an heir to eternal life. This is what binds us all together. This is what makes us one human family. The fact that we're, we're made with this one plan, this, this one purpose in mind. And how beautiful it is the way that the, that the scripture reveals this to us. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image after our likeness. So what does it mean to be created in the image of God? It means that we're persons. And a person is not just a gender-neutral term that you use to be polite, right? A person, from a philosophical point of view, is a subject, a being that is alive, that is aware that it's alive, that it exists, and that can reflect on its own existence and communicate with other persons, we're unique among visible creatures in this regard. Like, I know that your dogs and your cats love you very much, but they're not staying up all night worrying about what their life's going to be like in five years, right? They're not self-reflective. And although they're waiting to de- desperately to go out for a walk, they're not waiting for a heart-to-heart conversation with you. You, you may have one with them, but it's going <laughs> to be a one-sided conversation, yeah? But, we, but because we are made in the image of God, because we are persons... We are made for relationship. And we're not just made in God's image, but also after his likeness, which means our relationships have to be like the relationships among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which are always a total gift of self, right? The three persons of the Trinity give themselves to each other so completely, so infinitely, that they only have one being, that God exists as a communion of love, and so we're because we're made in the image and likeness of god we're made for loving relationships in which we give ourselves away and when god wanted to create an image of of god on earth an image of what god's love looks like what did god create not a single individual but a couple a family Because just as the Holy Trinity exists as a communion of love, he wanted human beings to exist in a communion of love. And so he didn't create one by himself, but created the two who could be there for each other. It's so important for us to understand that the very place that we we hear that we're created, male and female, is the place where we hear that we're created in God's image and likeness. Our bodilyness, the differences between men and women in the body, in the soul, The the sexual parts of our body, our sexual feelings, our sexual identity, and our our capacity for sexual intimacy, all of this is part of our being created in the image and likeness of God, capable and responsible for being in loving relationships. And that's how we understand it. That's the purpose of sex, is to help people form that that loving relationship which can be an image of God's love for us. So we look at sexual identity and, and the, the, the world looks at, at the body and, you know, we, we're kind of caught. On the one hand, there's this kind of materialistic approach which says the only thing that's important is the stuff that we can see and touch and measure. On the other hand, we've got this kind of Gnostic way of looking at things, going back to, like, ancient Platonism that says, well, the soul is what's important. You are your spirit, but and your body is something that you have, but you can do with it what you want, and maybe you're in the wrong one, and, and you can reshape it. Like, the body is just kind of something added on to the real you, But right at the beginning of things, we hear that our body and the way our body is made and shaped, that our bodilyness is part of who we are by God's design. That we exist as male or female at the moment of our creation. And that our creation as men or, or women is on purpose. Being man or being woman, the catechism says, is a reality which is good and willed by God. It's a gift to us. It's a gift that's given as soon as we have our our bodies, right? As soon as you existed, right? At the moment of your conception, your body existed as just one tiny microscopic little cell. And that one tiny microscopic little cell was either male or female. The medical definition of male is to have a Y chromosome. And we can't measure... We can't look at the chromosomes of that first little cell without, without uh, destroying it, right? But we know that, that that chromosome is there at the beginning, right? So long before your body was visible and long before your body had any sexual characteristics, long before your body had any sexual organs, you had a marker of your sexual identity in your chromosome, right? At the moment that God made you, he made you male or female. And that's his gift to you. Right, and so the catechism says there's a moral obligation that goes along with that everyone, man and woman, should acknowledge and accept his or her sexual identity we respond to the way we're made because we believe that the way we are made is, it comes from the mind of a God who, looking at us, knowing us loves us, and makes us who we are right, so our, our identity as male or female is a gift that God gives to each of us it's a gift that he gives us so that we can be a gift to someone else Man and woman were made for each other. God created them to be a communion of persons in which each can be helpmate to the other because they're equal in dignity and complementary in their, as masculine and feminine. Right? Complementary means that the differences between men and women are made to, to fit together, that they correspond to each other. Right? And that, that gives them the ability to be in a very particular type of relationship. It's a gift to society. Since God created the human being man and woman, their mutual love becomes an image of the absolute and unfailing love with which God loves human beings. And it's likewise a gift to the future. This love is good, very good in the creator's eyes. And this love which God blesses is intended to be fruitful and to be realized in the common work of watching over creation. So by reflecting on the, the, the scriptural story of creation... And by drawing out these, these realities, that, uh, uh, how sexual identity is a gift to the individual, to the couple, to the world, to the future, uh, the church is, uh, has identified certain characteristics of conjugal union, right? Uh, the, another way to, to title this slide would be, uh, what sex is for, right? The purpose of sexual, sexuality and sexual intimacy, Right? And, and the church has identified four essential, non-negotiable, gotta have them, can not live without them characteristics of a, of a holy, life-giving, fulfilling sexual relationship. Complementarity, man and woman were made for each other. Permanence and fidelity, their mutual love becomes an image of the absolute and unfailing love with which God loves man. Right? You can't give a total gift to lots of people at the same time. You can't give a total gift for a little while. right? And some of you have experience of what it feels like to give what ought to be a total gift outside of the context of a permanent relationship. You know from experience that that's not fulfilling. And then openness to procreativity. This, this love which God blesses is intended to be fruitful. So these characteristics of conjugal union, they're, they're, they're the, the signs of the unique context in which sex is part of god's plan right sexual desire and sexual intimacy and the joy that it brings it's all part of god's plan the catholic church is not getting is not prudish about this we don't think that it's gross or only for children or whatever i think Oftentimes we think that the, 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 the rules, so to speak, around sexuality were devised by a bunch of grumpy, like, 90-year-old bishops sitting around a dark room on a rainy day at the Vatican thinking, how can we make life difficult for people, right? In reality, the, the, the church respects, because God respects so highly, the power of sexual intimacy to really create a communion of persons, right? That, that, that we, we aim high. We say this is the one context in which sexual intimacy will always do what it's supposed to do. Right? There are other contexts that are leaving some of these things out, and they bring pleasure and, some, and joy and connection, but not in, to the same degree. Right? This is a conviction of our faith, that if you want to have the... This is, I tell engaged couples this all the time. It's not that the church doesn't want you to have sex. The church, in fact, wants you to have the best possible sex. Which means sex without compromise, without fear and shame, without saying you're doing one thing and actually doing another. Where what you're saying you're doing and and who you are and and what you're doing all corresponds together and and fits this pattern. This is the pattern, the the unique context in which sexual intimacy is fulfilling and life-giving and part of God's plan. When it's permanent and faithful, it means marriage, in a complementary relationship, man and woman, when they're open to procreation, no contraception. And so are there things that the church says are immoral, right? Not good, evil, in terms of sexuality? Of course there are. And all of those things, uh, the church makes that determination because one or more of these things is missing. Is it just homosexual relationships that the church makes this judgment on? Certainly not. But why would the church say that homosexual relationships are are not part of God's plan? Because they lack complementarity and, and procreativity. But the church also says that adulterous relationships are not part of God's plan, they're evil, because they lack permanence and fidelity. Fornication is not part of God's plan because it lacks permanence and fidelity, right? Masturbation and pornography, there's no complementarity if there's only one person involved, right? There's no procreativity. Contracepted sex, there's no procreativity, right? All these things are important, they all hang together, right? And so when the church has to say no to certain things, it's because they, 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 they're not part of the, the plan that we recognize as being good and life-giving. If we're, but it's, it's to get us to that road, to that plan, that the church says this is not the way. So we're not just a church that says no all the time. Right? But we say no to some things in order to help people to say a greater yes. And what is it that we're saying yes to? Right? Well, you know, one of the things that the church says when she's considering contraception, for example is that it's not possible to separate the unitive aspect of sexual intimacy, the fact that the two become one flesh, from the procreative aspect, that their, their, their union with each other is supposed to be about something greater than themselves. Right? It's not possible to separate unity and procreativity without having a really devastating impact on the spiritual life of the people involved. It's going to affect them. Why? Well, what are you saying? I want all of you except your fertility. I want to have your whole body except the parts of your body that can give new life. I want to have your whole person except the part of you that could be a mother or a father. Right? So that I want all of you except is not a total gift of self. Right? But look at what we're excluding. We're excluding that really fundamental part of the human heart that wants to give life has a desire to be generative, right? And even though the idea of having a child right now is very scary at your age, right? And maybe won't get less scary as you get older, right? Um, The idea of being responsible for for raising a child and, and all the things that that entails and all the sacrifices that motherhood especially involves, right, at the heart of every single one of us is that desire to be generative, to give life, and men and women experience that differently. Pope St. John Paul II wrote a really important encyclical letter that I would recommend to all of you uh, called Mulieris Dignitatem, On the Dignity of Woman. He wrote it in 1988, one of the international years of the woman, and he talks about the sexual identity of the woman as intimately linked to motherhood. Motherhood as a human fact and phenomenon is fully explained on the basis of the truth about the person, he says. Motherhood is linked to the personal structure of the woman and to the personal dimension of the gift. And the insight that he has is that because motherhood necessitates a particular type of love, that God gives every woman the ability to love that way. Motherhood, he says, involves a special communion with the mystery of life as it develops in the woman's womb. The mother is filled with wonder at this mystery of life and understands with unique intuition what is happening inside her. In the light of the beginning, the mother accepts and loves as a person the child she is carrying in her womb. right, so what is the characteristic of maternal love? It's the ability to recognize a person as a person, even when that human being doesn't look like we would expect a person to look, even when that human being is still microscopically small. And not just to recognize that person, but to give her whole self for the life of that person give all of her energy and all of her strength and all of her priorities and all of her day to making sure that person is safe and able to grow. This is the particular type of love that belongs to mothers and, and really to all women. Pope John Paul went on, this unique contact with the new human being developing within her gives rise to an attitude towards human beings, not only towards her own child, but every human being, which profoundly marks a woman's personality. It is commonly thought, he said, that women are more capable than men of paying attention to another person. Now, this is not a great insight, right? (laughs) Like, duh, St. John Paul, right? (laughs) And that motherhood develops this predisposition even more. What's he saying? If every woman, by virtue of being a woman, has the ability to love, has, has the ability, all things being equal, to become a mother, then every woman, by virtue of being a woman, needs to be able to love like a mother loves. And St. Bernardino of Siena said, if, whenever God gives a vocation, he gives the gifts that we need to fulfill it. So that means every woman, by virtue of being a woman, has an innate ability and desire to love like a mother loves. And likewise, every man, if every man, by virtue of being a man, has the capacity, all things being equal, to become a father, then every man has, has the necessity of being able to love like a father loves, then by God's gift, every man, by virtue of being a man, has the desire and the ability to love like a father loves. And so what's fatherly love look like? This uh, document from the, from the Vatican on, on for, forming priests, says there's something sublime in the qualities roused in a man's heart by natural fatherhood, an altruistic spirit, the assumption of heavy responsibilities, a capacity for love and a dedication enough to make any sacrifice, daily bearing of life's burdens and difficulties, prudent care for the future. Now you'll say to me, well, that's just kind of stereotypical, socially conditioned, uh, masculine roles. But no, it, it's, it's part of nature. Like, look at any a- animals that exist in flocks or herds, okay? Um, you can kill almost all the males. And as long as there's a couple of males left, the, the, the herd will bounce back in a generation. Okay, But you can kill almost all of them and it's still going to bounce back. If you kill almost all the females, that herd or flock is done. It's not bouncing back. So, even on the level of the animal kingdom, uh, males are expendable. Like, we're the ones who are made to die. (laughs) Seriously, right? If it's. That was. I was not expecting that reaction. (laughs) This little woo. No, if it's a matter of defending the flock or the herd from the outside, right? Males are made to put themselves on the line and to lay down their lives. That's where all these characteristics come from. The, the supernatural kind of human elements of that. But just at the level of our natural animal nature, like, we're made to to lay down our lives, right? Now, that's not to say that women don't do that. Like, you get close enough into the family and you watch out for mama, right? Because she's going to defend the, the, the family uh, tooth and nail. But, you know, the, the ones who are there to do that on purpose are the males, right? And so, you know, the, ca- the natural characteristics of fatherhood are different from but complementary to the natural characteristics of motherhood. Men and women have to love each in our own way, right? And we can love like that because there's a corresponding love that, that fits together with that, right? I'm laying down my life out here because you're making a, a, a total gift of your life in here and vice versa, Right? And so there's something just kind of natural, uh, really naturally important about our sexual identity and how we're made to love. And, and, and we're really only going to be able to live all of that out if the person that we're in love with, that we're giving our lives to, uh, is able to receive the kind of love that we have to offer and give a, a corresponding kind of love in return. And why complementarity is so important to sexual relationships. And, and why, although people who are of the same sex deeply care about one another and have deep affection and, and, and friendship and desire to be good and, and, and with one another, there's just something about the nature of, of, of fatherly male love and a motherly female love that, that, that naturally correspond to each other in a different way than two people of the same sex loving one another it's and, and so, if we're going to understand you know the the church's teaching about those kind of relationships we we take it from this point of view, but it also helps us to understand like well then then what if 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 I'm not going to be attracted and want to marry a person of the opposite sex, well then what's my life going to be like right and, and it starts with the realization that exercising fatherhood or motherhood in a spiritual way is not a second best kind of love. This document that I was just referring to says all of this is equally true of spiritual paternity, spiritual fatherhood. Moreover, spiritual fatherhood, not being confined to the natural order, is even more responsible and heroic. Spiritual motherhood, likewise, even more responsible and heroic. Spiritual fatherhood and motherhood is not a consolation prize. You know, there's one young man uh, that I, I Skyped with for a while. He was a military officer. And I I talked to him one time, uh, and he was just weeping, you know, just inconsolable sad. And, you know, what happened was his best friend's wife was about to have a baby, and his sister had just gotten married like two weeks before, and he was about to turn 30, which I think was the most traumatic of the whole thing. <laughs> and, you know, he, was, he said to me, he said, you know, all I want is a normal life. I want to be a father. I want to have kids and I don't know if that's ever gonna happen and I don't know what to do about that and, and, and I don't know like everybody around me, or my family, or my friends, is just moving on with their life and, and I don't know where I'm going or, or what's gonna be available for me. You know, and I try to console him, and it was one of those moments where the Holy Spirit kind of stands behind you and clears his throat and says, <clears> throat> If you'd like to shut up now, um, maybe you could try this. And this little moment of inspiration, I, I asked him. I said, "Listen, um, we're going to talk again in a couple of weeks, and I'd like you to uh, to just do something for me. Keep a little list. Anytime that somebody on your base comes in uh, and looks for you and for your help, because they're they're new on base and they don't know anything is, or they're, uh, they they." Uh, you know, somebody, they, they, they have a new job and they don't know how to do it or uh, something's going on at home or they're just homesick or they're having a fight with somebody you know just after you've dealt with it just write it down right? just keep a little list and we'll talk about it next time and don't worry about what, I want, what I'm trying to prove and so then we got on Skype a couple weeks later and he was beaming right so I thought the Holy Spirit was right less than the Holy Spirit is always right <laughs> and I said so I tried to play it cool I'm like so uh, what's been going on and he said I have to tell you about my list So tell me about your list. And he said, you know, he started reading down this list of all these things that had happened. And and then he made the connection all on his own. He said, I never knew so many people depended on me. I said, right. And for them, in that moment, you were a father figure. And now you know how that feels. Because you've been paying attention to it. And I don't know if there's going to be a woman who comes and changes your mind about sexual attraction and sweeps you off your feet and becomes your wife and the mother of your children. I don't know if you're going to live a single life or, or, or what. I don't know what's going to happen in five weeks from now, let alone five years from now. But what I do know is that in these relationships, at this moment, you, you were a spiritual father to these people. And now you know from experience that that's not nothing. That is far from being second best. That's a real love and a real meaningful love. And you can do that anytime you want. Right? And so, so part of our, our, our walking with our brothers and sisters who uh, are living with same-sex attractions and who are asking, like, what's my life going to be like? Is to help them to see where love already exists in their life. Right? And, and what kind of love the Lord is offering to them. You know, because everybody wants to be, needs to be important to somebody else. Everybody needs to love passionately and committedly. We, we want to give ourselves away. We're made for that. And the question is, well, how do I know where and when to do that? It's not as easy as saying, well, the heart wants what it wants. I feel it, so it must be right. You know, strong feelings are not decisive for the morality or holiness of persons, the catechism says. Emotions and feelings can be taken up into the virtues or led astray by the vices. You know, And so what we have to do is strive for virtue, especially the virtue of chastity. Now, I've said that and I've lost two-thirds of the room. I can feel it. Why? Because I say chastity and you think grouchy old skinny monk with a dirty face and a scraggly beard and a threadbare robe and bare feet on a stone floor in a tiny little room at the top of a tower with a window up here that you can't see out of and if you could all you could see would be rocks below with waves crashing on them and a tattered curtain that's flapping in the wind and blowing in the rain that's landing on a little wooden table with a cracked clay plate with a little hunk of bread that's about to go stale and moldy and a little wooden glass with dirty water in it and the candle that's about to to go out, and good, right? Because this guy is miserable. And if that's chastity, well, who wants that? That's why I tell priests all the time, nothing is going to to send young people running from the gospel message of chastity faster than a grouchy celibate. Right? The world says if you feel it, do it. As soon as you can with whoever you like as often as you want. The world thinks that the church says, if you feel it, be afraid of it, and push it down and hide it away and never say anything to anybody. Chastity, according to the catechism, means the successful integration of sexuality within the person, and thus the inner unity of man and his bodily and spiritual being. So chastity means, yeah, I feel it, and I'm not going to pretend that I don't. It's just a feeling, right? Deep, profound feeling. And I want to understand this feeling before I decide what to do. And so I'm going to not look at it in isolation because my estimation of feelings is not always so great. I'm going to bring it back into the big picture of who I am. What's my identity? How am I made? What's God's expectations for my life? What's my vocation? Where is he calling me? Right? And, and I'm, going to, I'm going to look at and consider this feeling in light of the big picture of who I am. And then I'll know what to do about it. And again, it's an expansion of our, our, of our understanding. Right? People say that the church's message of chastity is unfair because it condemns gay people to a life without love. I, I, I reject that. Right? For many reasons, one of which is that there's more than one kind of love. Right? C.S. Lewis has a neat little book called The Four Loves. And it's difficult to always recommend it to people because he was writing in the 50s and, and some of the language that he uses to describe gay people is language that we would find very offensive. And I apologize for that if you decide to read this book. I apologize on his behalf. I don't think he'd use it today. But he, he, what he does is he goes back to Greek philosophy and literature and he identifies different words that the Greeks used for love in different circumstances. You know, the love of affection, a kind of surface level love, Uh, that you have spontaneously uh, for your family, for example. I know they drive you crazy, but you love them anyway, right? Affection is the kind of love we have for children, for pets, for people who are in need or injured. It's that that spontaneous love that that causes us to reach out. And it's good, it's not terribly deep, but it's important. Charity or agape, the, the divine love with which God loves us, which enables us to love God in return and to love the people that he loves, just because he loves them. Easier said than done. Let's talk about heroic virtue. Passion, or Eros, the kind of sexual love that we've been talking about. You know, and the characteristic of Eros is that Eros wants to possess and be possessed by the beloved. Eros wants to make a total gift and get a total gift in return. So that, we have to acknowledge, Eros is always tending towards sexual union. Right? Even though at first it's, it's more romantic than sexual, right romance and flirtation and and exclusivity and and goes all those kind of things that that kind of put butterflies in your stomach but eros wants the whole person and as long as the the beloved is a human person having the whole person means having that body and soul right so eros always wants sex right so that's why we, you know we have to be careful you know what we say we're looking for because you know somebody who wants like you know the 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 chaste gay boyfriend right we're going to have an an exclusive relationship We're going to have, uh, we're going to be flirtatious and romantic and probably trying to to make this, uh, you know, a permanent thing, live together. And we're going to be together because we're attracted to each other and that's the foundation of our relationship. But don't worry, we know the Sixth Commandment and we know the theology of the body. We're not going to do anything, right? Well, they're setting themselves up to work at cross purposes with themselves. Eros, romance, always is tending towards sexual union, right? And so uh, to be chaste... And when, when the person that you're attracted to or interested in is not someone who can be your spouse in a relationship that's permanent and faithful and complementary and open to procreativity, right? To be, to be loving in that, in that regard means to sacrifice erotic feelings, sacrifice romance and flirtation and, and sexual feelings for the sake of building a friendship, which again is not a second best love. It's not a consolation prize, Right? Friendship means two people see the same thing in the same way. And not just two. Friendship can include lots of people. You know, but what binds them together is not just their affection and love for one another, but the fact that they're on a road together, that they're, they're pursuing something. It can be something very mundane, like liking the same sports team or going to the same school. But it can be something profound, like, like seeing the world through a certain lens or, or pursuing holiness and friendship with Jesus together. Right? But friendship means that, that we stand side by side and we walk side by side in pursuit of some common goal. Right? And, and uh, so we're not focused on an exclusive connection. right? And, and, and not really a, a total gift in the sense of the body as well as the spirit. You know, but we spend our time together helping one another to walk the road. So to pursue friendship in a chaste way, means, yeah, a, 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 a sacrifice of some desires. Chastity means an apprenticeship in self-mastery, which is a training in human freedom. The alternative is clear, the Catechism says, either a person governs his passions and finds peace, or he lets himself be dominated by his passions and becomes unhappy. Right? Ultimately, the Church preaches chastity as good news because it sets us free to love authentically. Like we are in charge of our decisions and our feelings rather than our feelings being in charge of us and our decisions. Right? And you, some of us know from experience what it's like when you just let your emotions and your desires and your urges and your appetites lead you around by the nose. Right? Whether it's sex or drinks or drugs or anything else. Right? When something's in charge of you, you're not free. And you can't be happy if you're not free. Now, chastity does not mean repression. Repression. Right? The passions are not fixed, unchanging obstacles to moral action. They do not simply have to be repressed in order for a person to act morally. But what we're talking about are the virtues, repeated good actions that change our hearts. You know, Virtues eventually they take a lot of work at the beginning and a healthy restraining of some desires. But eventually virtues become second nature to us. And, and they make us experience ourselves in the world and others in, in, in new ways. Right? And so God is asking us to start, to strive, to practice, to aim, to, to aim high, you know, and to, to pursue these virtues. It doesn't happen all at once, uh, but with time we can acquire them. But in order to do that, we need to be free. And, and in order to be free, we have to know what's keeping us unfree. Right? And those things can take very, all sorts of forms. You know? but when we're little kids, you know, our, our, our main need is, to, is for individuation. We need to stand on our own two feet, exist as our own person, know who we are. But we can't, nobody does that on their own. It's interesting. The process of becoming a healthy individual takes a lot of affirmation and support from lots of other people. Right? And there are many different reasons why people don't get this from the people around them when they're growing up. Right? And, and so sometimes you know we're, we're unfree because our, our fundamental relationships are shaky and, and our sense of self is shaky. And the answer to that is not to go back and relive your childhood. Or, and if you're a friend to somebody in that situation, the answer is not to, to replace their, their friends or family. It's, it's simply to help them to see in themselves what you see in them and affirm them and, and give them all the support that you can because then we can grow and mature and move forward. Right? And we need to be able to stay in relationship, even as adults, and and that can be really difficult if those family relationships are shaky. Right. I, one of the things I find it most difficult for people to do, especially young adults, is to say my parents weren't perfect, even though objectively we know that that's true. Right. We're all of, There's only one kind of perfect family in the history of the world, and they were only two thirds immaculately conceived. Right. Poor St. Joseph is just trying to keep up the whole time. (laughs) Father Benedict Rochelle gave us a retreat one time. He said, don't underestimate St. Joseph. It's not easy to come down every morning and have your coffee with the Immaculate Conception and the Incarnation. (laughs) But the rest of us were raised by imperfect people doing the best that they could because they were raised by imperfect people doing the best that they could and so on and so on all the way back to the beginning. And those of you who will be parents someday or are parents now will be imperfect people doing the best that you can and you'll raise imperfect children who will grow up to be imperfect parents doing the best that they can it's just part of who we are but what do we do with that right because to say that even as a young adult even when we know it's true feels very disloyal right and so what does a good-hearted person do generally speaking a good-hearted person internalizes all that well if he wasn't there for me or she didn't give me what I needed or if they didn't love me the way that I needed to be loved then there must be something wrong with me. And we need to give our friends, you know, especially people who are carrying this burden, we need to give them a space to, to just say those things and, and not have to feel terrible about it and, and then help them to, again, to, to say that that isn't the only way to think about things and, and, and that's a lie, right, that that's all my fault that, that things ended up the way that it did. You know, and instead to help them to see who they are and not to be ashamed and not to carry around these burdens anymore. You know, and when we're talking about people who experience same-sex attractions and, and are in the church, a lot of times that shame extends just to the very experience of it. Like, I can't ever tell somebody that this is how I feel. Nobody would understand. And so we have to be able to, to proclaim what the church actually teaches about, uh, about same-sex attractions. While the church teaches that homosexual acts are immoral, why? Because they lack procreativity and complementarity. She distinguishes between engaging in homosexual acts and having a homosexual inclination. While the former, the actions are always sin, objectively sinful. The latter is not. The church does, simply having the tendency is not a sin. Consequently, the church does not teach that the experience of homosexual attraction is in itself sinful. No one. No one is rejected or excluded or isolated from the church because they are gay, because they have this experience of same-sex attraction. Right? Every person, not just people who experience same-sex attraction, is called to chastity and to make good decisions about their attractions and whether or not to act on them. But no one is excluded or rejected or condemned by God or by the church or by me or by anybody because of this experience. Okay, There is room in the church for people who are living with this experience in their lives and and we need to help other people in the church understand that right evangelicals take a much harder line on this and say that the experience of attractions is sinful therefore everybody has an obligation to eradicate those attractions and make themselves straight and get married that's not what the catholic church says right the, the important thing is to be chaste in our actions and in our way of looking at ourselves uh, whether or not those attractions ever change or go away we have to recognize that if we're, if we're inviting someone to chastity, we're often inviting them away from unchaste behaviors and unchaste relationships, which means we have to be ready to walk with them and help them to understand it and give them a place to walk to, give them a community to join. You know, because one of the other questions is, well, who's going to love me for me? Right? And especially if someone's attached to pornography, this is very important. You know, um, people pick up the message from pornography, if I'm going to be accepted and desired and wanted and loved is because I look a certain way and, and talk or act a certain way or I'm sexually available. Right? And so if we're saying to someone, like, you need to be chaste in how you think and what you do and how you relate to other people. Some people are going to say, well then who's going to love me for who I am? Who's going to see me for who I am? Right? And again, it's, it's our responsibility as friends to, to tell them what we see in them. To help them to see it in themselves. You know, we have to speak honestly about you know, how far is too far between friends, you know, between people who are not pursuing arrows together? What's the difference between affection and sexual intimacy? Right? And, and to not make that false dichotomy that says, well, I can have a romantic and exclusive and flirtatious and touchy relationship, but it's not, I'm going to make sure it doesn't go too far. Eros, romance always wants to go in that direction. So once again, to sacrifice sexual intimacy and intimate actions and sometimes intimate conversations to sacrifice those feelings for the sake of building up a real friendship. And we need to make a place in our church uh, where people feel welcome and understood, where we can have good conversations about what the church teaches and how to communicate it well. So you know, then it's up to us to discern, you know, what is my future going to be like? and just a reminder of, of what we talked about before the, the, the likeness between us and God reveals that we cannot fully find ourselves except through a sincere gift of self right? and, and the, the problem is that once again we look at things too narrowly You know, the world seems to think that the only real feelings are sexual feelings, and the only real relationships are sexual relationships, and that if you don't have a sexual relationship, and if you don't eventually have marriage, you haven't got anything, right? And, you know, I can can testify as a celibate man that a life without sex and marriage is not a life without love, right? I love my family, and my family loves me. I love my friends, and my friends love me. I love my parishioners, and... Most of my parishioners love me. (laughs) Most of the time. You know, but the Catholic bishops of England and Wales say the church teaches that sexual intercourse finds its proper place and meaning only in marriage. And the church does not share the assumption common in some circles that every adult person needs to be sexually active. Moreover, there's more to a person than sexual inclination and more to love than sexual desire. Right, So oftentimes we're, we're not talking just about sexual relationships as the only way to be fulfilled. But still, we, we think about chastity and, and a single life as something necessarily lonely and therefore necessarily harmful and hurtful and unfulfilling. Right? But, but we have to think about it differently than that. First of all, because no one lives a completely single life. We all have connections and therefore obligations to other people. And if God is calling people who experience same-sex attractions to chastity, that means celibacy, that means a single life. He's also calling them to make a gift of themselves somewhere, to their family or their community, to a friend who's in need, to, to their parish. In, in some way, we only know who we are by giving ourselves away. I want to challenge you with with something. In in 1945, just a few months after the end of World War II, uh, Pope Pius XII had a meeting in Rome with representatives from all the Italian organizations for Catholic women. They all sent sent delegations that got together. And he he gave an, uh, an address to them, and he was talking about vocation. And he said, when one thinks about the girls and young women who voluntarily renounce marriage to consecrate themselves to a higher life of contemplation, of sacrifice and of charity. At once a luminous word comes to one's lips. Vocation is the only word that suffices for such an elevated experience this vocation he said this call of love makes itself known in very diverse ways irresistible invitations affectionately demanding inspirations pleasing impulses not everybody gets the angel on the windowsill like the blessed mother did but but you know all of us have you know we experience our vocation generally in terms of a direct calling from the lord but he says even the young, woman who, young Christian woman who remains unmarried despite wishing to be, who nevertheless firmly believes in the providence of the Heavenly Father, can recognize in the ups and downs of life the voice of the Master. Now, it's important, the timing of this, yeah? It's just a few months after the end of World War II. Most of the young women in front of him had planned to get married to men who had just died in the war. Right? And they weren't coming back, and they weren't being replaced by anybody. Right? So many of those young girls who thought that their vocation was marriage weren't going to be married now. And the Pope's challenge to them was to still recognize a calling from God. The Master is here, and he is calling you. The words of Martha to her sister Mary at the funeral of their brother Lazarus. She responds, he says, she renounces the precious dream of her adolescence and of her youth to have a faithful companion in life to build a family. And in the impossibility of marriage, she discerns her vocation. Now, with a broken but docile heart, she gives her whole self to very noble and manifold good works. Right, so for our brothers and sisters who are in this in this situation of, of experiencing same-sex attractions and not being attracted to the opposite sex and, and and realizing that marriage is somehow impossible as a result still there is a vocation still there is a calling if they can hear it and we ought to help them to hear it to hear God calling them to a heroic sacrifice to a heroic acceptance of his will for them to say I didn't choose this for myself I wouldn't have wanted it for myself all I want is a normal life but here I am in a situation that I didn't cause and I didn't choose and and God's asking me to do something that I never would have chosen on my own but if God's asking me to do it I will try I will strive I will I will close that one door and and walk through another one and give myself somewhere maybe not to marriage not to family but but to very noble and manifold good works someone there needs me to be a spiritual mother or a spiritual father someone there needs me to love passionately and committedly someone there needs me to be in their life and to be committed to them and I'm going to find that and find joy in that because I recognize it as a call from the Lord and not just a restriction by the church okay it's a challenge but I think a profound uh, invitation if we can hear it coming from the one who looking at us loves us, and extends this calling to us. You know, so it's up to us to be friends for one another. The bishops of the United States say, friendship is absolutely essential for the good life. There can be little hope of living a healthy, chaste life without nurturing human bonds, and isolation makes it more difficult to practice chastity. True friendships are not opposed to chastity, nor does chastity inhibit friendship. In fact, the virtues of friendship and of chastity are ordered to each other. So that one way in which the church aids people with same-sex attractions is by nurturing the bonds of friendship among people. Right? And friendship among people, among human beings to be sure, but ultimately friendship with Christ. Right? Where we help one another to carry our crosses. Recognizing that you know, when we're helping one another, that Christ is helping us that he's reaching out to us with his grace, that he's reaching out to us with with his love, that he's he's looking at us and loving us and offering us the grace that we need. So this letter from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith says, what then are homosexual persons to do who seek to follow the Lord? Fundamentally, they are called to enact the will of God in their life by joining whatever sufferings and difficulties they experience to the sacrifice of the Lord's cross. That cross for the believer is a fruitful sacrifice since from that death come life and redemption. While any call to carry the cross or to understand a Christian's suffering in this way will predictably be met with bitter ridicule by some, it should be remembered that this is the way to eternal life for all who follow Christ. It is easily misunderstood, however, if it is merely seen as a pointless effort at self-denial. The church says, I'm not allowed to have love, so I guess I have to be grin and bear it. No, no, that's not embracing the cross. The cross is a denial of self, but in service to the will of God himself who makes life come from death and empowers those who trust in him to practice virtue in place of vice. To celebrate the Paschal Mystery, it is necessary to let that mystery, the death and resurrection of Jesus, become imprinted in the fabric of daily life. Just as the cross was central to the expression of God's redemptive love for us and Jesus, so the conformity of the self-denial of homosexual men and women with the sacrifice of the Lord will constitute a source of self-giving which will save them. What is the message of the cross? What does Jesus say on the cross? No matter what happens, I will not stop loving you. And they told him to shut up with that message. We don't want to hear it. It's too much. We don't believe it. Get away with it. And he kept saying it. And they said, if you don't shut up, we will kill you. And he says, no matter what happens, I will not stop loving you. And they said, see, this is you brought it on yourself. We're nailing you to the cross now. You're going to die. You need to stop saying this. And he says, no matter what happens, I will not stop loving you. And if we hear the Lord saying that to us, then we can say it in return. Lord, this is difficult. This is a sacrifice that's too big for me. You're asking me too much. You're asking me to live, you know, to, to, make, to give up too much. And nobody around me understands it. and Nobody around me is supporting it. But how can you ask me to do this? And, and, and what is he saying to us? No matter what, no matter what you're going through, no matter what burdens you're carrying, no matter how much you need, no matter how much you, 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 you are afraid, no matter what happens, I will not stop loving you. And what he asks us to to say in return is, no matter what sacrifice you're asking me from me, Lord, I will try never to stop loving you in return. But I need you to help me. I need you to stay with me. You know, and ultimately, we find ourselves with the Lord after his resurrection. When he reminds us what his cross was about so that we can understand what our crosses are about. Nothing ended on Good Friday. The cross was not the final word. The cross is ridiculous without the empty tomb. Good Friday is a, is a sham and a fake and, a, and, and nonsense without Easter Sunday. And the Lord never abandons us if we're trying to make a heroic sacrifice, even sacrificing relationships and, and feelings that seem so profoundly connected to the core of who we are. He never abandons us on that cross, but leads us through that sacrifice and through that suffering to, re, to resurrection, to a new kind of life, to a new ability to love, to a new ability to be there for people. And this is very good news. Right? And I am so proud of the people that I know through my work with Courage who are striving to do this day by day. And I am so proud of those of you who are here, who are living with this experience, and are scared by what I'm saying, or are, are, are not quite sure you're ready to hear it, but you're still here and you're still listening. I'm so proud. And I know that your church is so proud and so desirous of being there, being a support for you. and and even if you're not living with this experience of same-sex attraction, look, everybody's got something, yeah? Everybody carries some burden, some wound, and everybody's found some way of coping with those wounds that's really not healthy. Everybody here is being invited to a heroic sacrifice, and I am so proud that you're even considering it. And I know that Jesus is here, and he's looking at you, and he sees you, and he loves you. And all he's asking from you is that you give up whatever it is that, become, that is an obstacle between you and him. And he's not saying to you, give it up because it's a commandment. Give it up because I'll be angry at you otherwise. Give it up so you don't go to hell. Jesus is looking at you and loving you and saying to you, could you please give that up for us? so that we can be closer to one another and you can be my disciple. Don't ever be afraid to answer that call. Thanks very much for listening.